there are some incredible um, um, insect farms that are growing insects for human consumption around the world. It's something we really need to pay attention to. And if you are really trying to change your health and at the same time, um, you know, meet or exceed other important obligations and expectations of uh, eating in a sustainable way and in an ethical way, then this is, I think, something that's worthy of, of, of your time to do. Resetters, Dr. Mindy here, and I am on a mission to teach you just how powerful your body was built to be. This podcast is about giving you the power back and helping you believe in yourself again. Let's jump in. On this episode of the Resetter Podcast, I bring you back Dr. Bill Schindler. So we have already done two episodes with this brilliant mind that you're about to hear. And where Bill and I really meet on missions is that we both are so focused on trying to bring back many of the ancient healing principles that our primal ancestors did years ago. How do we bring those into this modern world so that our health can thrive? So I love it because I feel strongly that we can do this through fasting and Bill feels very strongly that we can do it through food. He has a new book that's out and it's called Eat Like a Human. It is like no other health book and cookbook. It's a combination of both that you will ever find because this man has traveled. He's a food anthropologist and he has traveled all over the world looking at different cultures, going back in time in in history and seeing how we prepared food, the quality of food that we ate. Um, and certain food groups that we used to eat that we are no longer eating again. So in this episode, we actually talked about three key things. One, we talked about something as simple as corn, all the different variations of how corn is prepared, and that when you're actually eating corn in a processed way, you actually could be setting yourself up for certain deficiencies of different nutrients. So we talked about the preparation of corn and how important that was to our overall health, especially vitamin and mineral balance. Second thing we talked about was insects. Now this is fascinating too. There is a lot of evidence and, and emergence in the in even different foodie worlds that insects are an incredible source of protein. But I don't know about you, do we just pick up insects off the ground? How do we cook with insects? What do we, sh- are they safe? These are all the questions I had for Bill and he will show you a whole new approach to insects and eating insects in a way that will give you extra protein, will give you more amino acids. Okay, third thing. We talked about clay, activated charcoal, and ash, which clay comes from the earth, and many uh, cultures in our world use clay in their cooking to as a detoxifier. We also talked about activated charcoal and ash as the residue left over from fire. Our primal an- ancestors also used those as detoxifiers and nutrients. And we can now bring these back into our diet and Bill is gonna show you how exactly to do that. He's gonna talk about resources for all these. He talks about recipes in his new book. I love this man. I love the mission he's on and he, brings a whole new discussion to food that nobody's having. 
So Dr. Bill Schindler, enjoy. And if you get inspired to make one of his recipes or to start eating crickets, please, please tag me on on any social. I can guarantee you that after this conversation, I wanted to know how I could start cooking this way. So if you come up with some new ways that you experiment with this type of uh, style of eating, let me know. I'd love to see your pictures on social media. Enjoy. Hey, Recenters, as we step into the new year, I am so thrilled to invite you on an extremely transformative journey with me in my Reset Academy. So check this out. If you're ready to kickstart your fasting and health journey, which I know so many of you have reached out to us and asked how you customize a fasting lifestyle for you, my Reset Academy is the absolute best place to be. So here's what you get in the academy, and I like to think of it in terms of a complete picture. So imagine being surrounded by people who understand your journey, who are passionate for fasting, who want to lift you up and will support you every step of the way. My academy is not just me, my team, but it is an incredible group of people that are all dedicated to building fasting lifestyles and supporting each other in it. This is why I created the Reset Academy. So when you join, you gain access to all the exclusive calls where my team and I share the latest insights, we answer your burning questions, and we guide you towards your health goals. That's not it. We didn't stop there. By becoming a member, you're not just investing in a membership, but you're investing in yourself. I am such a fan of setting you up to win this year. And my academy is the best place I know to do that. I want to keep you focused. I want you to customize this for you. And I want you to succeed at your health goals this year. End of story. So if you're ready to unlock your fullest potential and embrace a fasting lifestyle, join me. If it feels good, join me. And let's make this year an incredible year for us all. So all you got to do is go visit drmindypels.com slash reset academy to become a member. I can't wait to welcome you. I can't wait to see you on the Zoom calls. I can't wait to be in community with you. And most importantly, let's get your health goals handled and let's do this together. It's so much better together. Together. So that's drmindypels.com slash reset academy. Excited to see you there. So here's what I love, Bill, about you. I mean, many things I love about you and your family. But when I first started to understand fasting, what my where my brain went to is that the human body right now in this modern world is living totally out of sync with our ancestor, ancestral, uh, what do we call them? I guess our ancestors, ancestors. Our, prim- <laughs> our primal ancestors. So what is it that we can bring back into this world that they did that we could use as a tool now to be able to thrive as humans in this crazy modern world? Oh, that's, such, that's such a great question. And, and it's a question that so many different people are addressing from so many different places. Um, I know, you know those people talking about uh, you know, grounding and, and uh, you know, cold therapy and all these other sorts of things. And then, and then sometimes people are going a little bit off in in my mind, a little bit off the deep end where they're, um, you know, recreating failed hunts and then doing these other sorts of things. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it it isn't 
brand new. That that's something that was going on twenty or thirty years, where you know you come up with this reconstruction of your mind, what life was like in the past, and then you try to replicate all of it. And there's some validity to that, no doubt. Um, but the reality is the amount of time that we're talking about, millions of years of diversity. Um, and then within those millions of years, diversity geographically and environmentally all over all over the place, you know, people didn't do the same thing all the time for three and a half million years. So you, you wouldn't have this, this certain kind of a hunt for the entirety of a population and then a failed hunt and then a certain kind of, and then people would eat, there's even people that will um, cut themselves because they think, well, if I was fighting a mastodon, and, you know, and this, it, it really, so there, it does extreme to the absurd. And I'm not suggesting to go that route. But, what, but a, a good solid understanding of the relationship between people and their environment, I think is very important. And I think trying to replicate access to things like sunlight and fresh air and the earth and all the microbes and all that is important. And then from my point of view, and one of the things that you know I'm focused on is finding ways to replicate how uh, our ancestors approached food to make it as safe and nourishing as possible to get right. it ready for our bodies. Yeah. And, the, and you're, by the way, the only person I know that's really, truly looking at our primal ancestors and showing us food styles and ways we can start to look at preparing food that would mimic that, which is why right. I, I love, I love your book. And I'm going to really recommend, you know, all of you listening that you go and get eat like a human. And it's just a great, I mean, the concept's great. So Thank you. Um, let's dive in. I want to go through three things and just filling okay. everybody in because these three things are, are really topical and interesting to my mind. And I think there's a lot we can learn from them. The first is I want to talk about some of the ways we're preparing food now. So you, you have a thing on corn that I want you to dive into old corn versus new corn. I definitely want to talk about bugs. And how we can eat bugs. I'm so, I have a whole bunch of, uh, so I'm so interested on this. And then I want to talk about ash and using <laughs> ash for healing. So why don't we start with the corn? What, what is it that's really missing in a main crop right now, like corn? You, you know, what, one of the things that's really fascinating to me are the, the different modern factors involved with, uh, kind of teaching us in, 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 a, in a very uh, bad, bad sense, um, what food is and how much of it we should be eating, right? It, we don't have the same sort of um, triggers and, and barriers and, and, and things in the past that um, promoted certain things in our diets and restricted other things in our diets, right? For example, we have way too much easy, cheap sugar in our, in our, in our, um, right. in our grocery stores today. And all of a sudden, because it's so cheap and because it's in so many things, many of us don't realize how bad it actually is. Like how could something this bad be this prevalent? Well, it is. Um, but it's the same thing with grains and, and maize or corn. And for the real quick, just a little semantics here, corn means grain. So okay. it's an old, an old world term that means grain and that usually refers to the local grain of, of an area. So if, if you said corn in Ireland back in the day, it would have meant oats, right? Um, if you meant, if you said corn in say England, it would have meant probably wheat or something like that. So when the early explorers came to the Americas armed with this word corn, that just means local grain. 
and they saw the Native Americans with maize or what we now consider corn. They just called it corn. It just meant grain. And now it's kind of stuck. So when it's really synonymous, right? So corn or maize is really the same thing. But uh, on the same sense, and this is very important as well to understand, the two major ways that most of us eat corn or maize is one in a in a dried, usually ground up form like cornmeal, and then also like at a at a picnic where you're eating corn on the cob. Yeah, corn on the cob is an unripe version of the grain, right? So it, it has different nutrients, different problems with it, different good things about it. But it is we're talking about that essential plant, which is a grass that has this grain or the or, or maize. Now the problem with maize, several things is, and one and how I started is that. It is the most widely grown grain in the entire world. One of the good things about maize is that it's very easy to grow. And within certain latitudes, it's just so easy. And, you know, within that band around the planet, we see tons of maize being grown. Um, in, in the U.S., we have government subsidies to, to, to grow these right. things. So it's actually relatively cheap. And we see it in everything. Um, that's, well, I don't know if it's good or bad. But here's some bad things. One is it's it's probably the most difficult grain for the human body to fully digest. And back to, I know we've talked about this before, and I know probably most people understand this now, but just because you put a food that contains certain nutrients in your mouth, that doesn't mean those nutrients are in an absorbable or usable state by your body. And maize is a great, maize is probably the poster child for this. And, and I'll tell you a story in just a moment, but just because you eat maize, it, the only thing you can guarantee is that it comes out the other end. And did, did that, did that completely hold sometimes. That's it. That's what I got to tell you. I, I, actually, can I grab something? It's going to take me it. 10 seconds. Yeah. Because I see it. Hold on a second. Okay. Well, you you went here first. So it's okay that I, that I go here too now. I, All right. So this I, is I, my. Sp- I, I'm going to have to describe for our listeners. He's now opened up a very big um, container of mystery stuff uh post corn in the stool conversation i'm a little nervous it's coming out okay this so when my youngest daughter who's now 14 was very young we um we had we had just moved here uh and where i live is in a fairly rural area there's not a lot of access to stores especially stores that stay open late and it was the night before christmas eve and my wife called me, Christina called me. She said, listen, uh, you know, she was counting all the gifts and all the stockings and all this. And she says, listen, we, she, obviously we have three kids. We have to make sure everything's equal. And she says, listen, we're, we're, we're shy one stocking thing for Alyssa. Oh, and you have to go get something. And you have, um, you know, you have a maximum amount. You can spend like $5. And I'm like, you just, you just set me up for failure. We're in the middle of Chestertown, Maryland, on the Eastern shore. Everything's closed. I have to buy a gift for a four, you know, our four-year-old daughter. And... Um, $5 limit. So I went into Toys R Us and I was going through all the aisles and I couldn't find it. And then I went to the Play-Doh aisle and I saw it. I saw it. It was perfect. And I got two because it one for her, one for me. And this is it. So number one, it has the, so you can describe this mold, but it has oh this gosh. mold. He's got a poop got, mold. He's holding <laughs> up a poop mold. I just want you all to know. And it's got two colored things. One, somebody's really sick who invented, they either got fired or promoted. I don't know. <laughs> So it's got this like greenish brown, right thing, uh, which is obviously for the poop. But here's the important piece: it also has yellow, and it's for the kernel of corn on the mold. So the mold oh has not gosh. only poop but a kernel of corn. So I bring this when I speak because it's a perfect example. All of us, everybody listening, has eaten corn on the cob, and usually when you 
you eat it, it's completely overcooked, overbuilt. It's terrible at a picnic and we eat it. And every one of us, whether we want to admit it or not, has seen whole kernels of corn the next day in, in the bowl. And we maybe laugh about it. Most people other than you and me don't talk about it. But <laughs> the reality is, what are we doing? I mean, that, that was supposed to be food. And all it did was take a ride on our digestive tract. That's right. it. It, didn't and, even it doesn't even break down. Doesn't even break down. And that was a visual example of it. I mean, uh, corns, uh, sorry, grains, nuts, legumes, seeds, they are physically and chemically um, designed to withstand the digestive tract of animals. I mean, that's exactly what they do. The fruits, on the other hand, that most of these things are encased in are, are there, they, they're to attract, they're, they're sweet smelling, sweet tasting, and they're, they're wonderful. So they want to get eaten. Then the seeds survive the digestive tract, and then they get dumped in a pile of manure, you know, first, and that's exactly how it's supposed to work. But here we are trying to derive nutrition from this thing that is physically and, and chemically designed to withstand our digestive tract. And that's a, such a great example. Now, here's the part we don't usually see. Even if you took that maize or that corn, dried it and ground it up into cornmeal, we wouldn't see it the next day mm. in the bowl. But what the reality is a lot of the nutrients that were in it did withstand our digestive tract. And if we have a second, and here's the here's the powerful the powerful story. So maize was first domesticated, probably, and there's a lot of debate. At minimum eight thousand years ago, some suggestions are up to twelve or thousand years ago or longer. In fact, there's some suggestion that maize could have been the first domesticated plant on the planet. Hmm. Regardless, it has a very long history. And it was the staple food of so many civilizations, the Incas, the Olmecs, the Mayans, I mean, Aztecs. And it wasn't like they had, you know, a little bit of maize in their diet and other stuff. It was a bunch of maize in their diet and a little bit of other stuff. I mean, it it was at at that level. Then, and so it spreads throughout the Americas from South America, Central America, all the way into North America. It actually hits places even like New York State at a very early time. So Native American diets in general were in many cases um, dominated by maize by the time the early explorers came and saw it for for the first time about 500 years ago. So explorers saw it. It tastes great. It's filling. It's easy to grow. Of course, they took this back to Europe with them and tried to spread it. uh, And it did spread. It spread like wildfire. But along with the maize, on the tail of the maize, as the maize spread, a disease called pellagra was followed in its wake. Mm -hmm. And it was first documented in the 1700s in Spain. And then it was documented in Italy. Um, and then we see it in Eastern Europe. And this disease, it's very, it's, it's fascinating, really. This disease um, first shows up as uh, skin lesions. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, pieces of skin are falling off. And sometimes it's, it was misdiagnosed as leprosy, uh, eventually if untreated or, or, or undealt with blindness, and then even death in, in many cases. And this was anywhere you saw maize, this, especially in poor populations uh, where maize dominated the diet because it was so incredibly cheap and filling, um, you, you saw this pellagra and it just followed around. It showed up, um, believe it or not, some authors and researchers suggest that it was the basis for most of the vampire um, huh. mythology uh, because it shows up in Eastern Europe at that time and you would get uh, bleeding in the mouth, aversion to sunlight, pale skin, all of those things. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. We see it again in the 18, uh, mid-19th century at, at the end of the Irish potato famine because the U.S. as famine relief food was shipping massive quantities of maize to Ireland and people now that had access to that maze were no longer dying of starvation, but they were getting sick and dying of this weird disease they never saw before. Right. And then most recently, 
well, most dramatically for at least for us, um, in the early 1900s, 1920s, 1930s in the American Southeast, uh, it showed up in a, a mass amount. People were dying and getting sick left and right. And the, the, the really interesting part of the story is that the, our government hired an infectious disease doctor by the name of Jeffrey Goldberg and um, or Goldberg. And they asked him to, to study this. And they said, you know, you, you have to tell us what disease is causing you know, all this all this trauma. And he studied and came back and he said, listen, I am. Um, I, I'm an infectious disease doctor. I, this isn't infectious. It's not infectious at all. It has to do with food. I think it has to do with corn. And they were like, there's no way. First of all, there's no way a disease this bad is food related. Right? Does this sound familiar? Right. And yep. then number two, don't mess with corn. You know, corn is king of the South. Don't even mess with it. Go figure out what this was. So he went to mental institutions and prisons, things you can't do today. And he divided the populations in half, fed half of them nothing but corn, fed the other half regular diet, whatever diets they were getting, and people that were fed nothing but corn started to get sick and show symptoms of, of this disease. Still couldn't convince everybody. And what he had to do was he and his wife and his partner would hold these parties, parties, he called them filth parties, because this was a disease that was usually something, um, you know, it, it showed up in impoverished areas, people called it a filth disease, it was something if someone in your family got, you were very embarrassed that it had happened. Um, and they brought, gathered a whole bunch of people around, brought people that were suffering from this disease up to the middle, and they would um, they would take uh, swabs and swab their mucous membranes and then swab their own, and then right. they would draw blood from the victim, the people that were suffering from it, then stick put the blood right into their own veins, and then even they would take the skin, the scabs from them, and eat them. Cool. Just to show that it wasn't infectious, and they finally convinced people and said, "Okay, this isn't infectious." They, um, but they couldn't figure out what the cause was. And it wasn't until 1936 that a team of doctors who won Scientist of the Year in Time magazine that year as a result of this realized it was a result of a niacin deficiency in their diet. So here's the crazy, crazy part and the punchline of the whole story. This happened in areas where people uh, were starving or very sick already or, 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 or um, actually uh, malnourished already. And maize comes in, it's incredibly cheap, and maize replaces anything else they were eating because it was just so filling and cheap. And all they were eating was maize and all different, or corn in all different forms. The, they weren't suffering from this disease before because even though they weren't eating enough food, they were getting food from a variety of different sources and getting niacin from some of those sources. But when mm -hmm. they just ate the maize, they weren't getting the niacin in their bodies where it needed to go, and they were getting sick and literally dying. When I say some... Over the core, even in just the U.S. alone, over a span of just a couple of decades, millions of people got sick and hundreds of thousands were dying from this disease because of eating maize, because of eating corn. Crazy. But the, again, the punchline of the story is, you know, all that you can sort of maybe understand. But the problem is maize has massive quantities of niacin in it. I mean, the, the funniest part is they yeah. were eating food dying and suffering from malnourishment, you know, not getting enough niacin while eating massive quantities of niacin. The problem is the niacin and the maize, along with other things, are locked up in a state that our bodies can't access unless we process the maize properly. This is why we don't see evidence. And this is exactly what the Native Americans were doing for literally thousands of years. We know for sure they were doing it for 4,000 years. Um, and we just identified a new technique, archaeological technique, to directly 
look at an archaeological site and tell if they were if they were actually nishtamalized in May. So I that four thousand is going to get pushed back, I bet, by thousands of years as as we look uh, further and further. So here we are. Millions of people around the world were getting sick and dying from a, a disease while eating the food that contained the thing that they didn't, you know, were getting into their bodies. And the only thing that they had to do was process that maze properly. And the, the way to process it properly is called nishtamalization. And it's incredibly simple. In the past, you would use wood ash and water to create an alkaline or lilac solution. Uh, simmer the kernels of maize in it for about 30 minutes, let it sit overnight and, and wash it off the next day. It's literally all you have to do. Today, we use other alkaline things like lye or something called cal or calcium hydroxide, which you can dig up out of the ground. And, and that's all you need to do. Originally, grits were uh, made the same way. Um, real tortillas. Uh, up until the Civil War, after the Civil War, almost all grits are just ground of corn. They're not nishtamalized. So same issue is there. Cornmeal is not nishtamalized. Um, but a real genuine tortilla like you would get in Oaxaca, Mexico, is nishtamalized. A tamale, which the word comes from nishtamalization, is actually a real one is actually made properly. Yeah. So please tell me you're gonna you're you have a course on how to <laughs> teach people how to do that with corn. We do, and it's so simple. And all you need is the corn, and you can go to literally you can go to Walmart and buy pickling lime, which is actually calcium hydroxide, and do the entire process in a pot on your stove, or go to a Mexican grocery store or Hispanic grocery store and get calcium hydroxide. It is incredibly cheap. And you are talking about not only improving the nutrition, but it improves the flavor, it improves the aroma, it improves the texture as well. Amazing. Uh, just to back up one step. So what, what I heard in that is they were niacin deficient because the food product that was supposed to give them niacin didn't have an available, it wasn't an available source of niacin. Right. It's in yeah. a state called niacin, which uh, the, our body can't do anything with. It actually has to change. It was locked up in the maze and they were actually, it was passing right through their bodies. So is corn our number one way to get niacin or can we get niacin from other foods? Oh, you can get niacin from other foods. The, the reason this was such a huge issue in the examples that I that I mentioned was because, and, and why it usually o only happened in, in impoverished areas where people didn't have a lot of access to food is because corn dominated the diets and replaced other foods in their diet. Got it. So it's not like, and I do want to be very, very clear here. I think there's two big takeaways for us today. You know, most of us have access to a lot of different foods you're not going to get sick by eating corn on the cob. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to die of pellagra because you're getting all these from, 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 from other places. Other, yeah. But at the same token, you know, that story about maize, I think it's a profound, very interesting story, but absolutely is just one example of, you could tell very similar stories about literally almost every single food in yeah. our diets today. And it's about that processing. So it's happening in maize, it's happening in dairy, it's happening in grains, it's happening yes. all over the place. And it's the culmination of all those things where the real problems, the root yeah. of it is. Do you think, I'm going to go as bold as to say, do you think humans are on a collision course uh, with extinction if we don't come back to some of these ancient food preparation strategies? Oh, I, I think absolutely. Yeah. Extinction for not only ourselves, but all the resources. I mean, so, so here, look, look, this is the most widely grown grain in the world. And I have been, I, I, I've, 
been a part of and also witnessed so many conversations where you have some of the best scientists in the world sitting there saying, okay, how are we going to feed a growing population? Oh, maybe we need to genetically modify corn better so that we can plant more stalks on the same acre. And I'm sitting there saying, you're not even getting all the nutrition from the corn we already have. Let's not even start talking. Maybe that is an important conversation to have some time, but we're not there yet because right. we're not getting all the nutrition from the food we already have access right. to. And, the, and I will tell you on the flip side of that genetically modified conversation, because I've had it with, with friends around the dinner table that are really, really intelligent people who are advocates of genetically modified foods because you can feed so many people. But what I hear you saying, and I would agree with, is just because a food can sit on your table and can be highly processed and can go in your mouth doesn't mean it's giving you the nutritional capability that you need to function normally, not even thrive to function normally as a human. And that has to change or we are on a collision course with a lot of things. And on top of that, and with sitting on your counter, all this processed food and you're sitting and you're looking at the box or the can or the plastic package and you read, you know, the nutritional breakdown on the back and the macro and micronutrients, and you have that unfortunately false sense that, okay, if I eat that food that's going into my body and it's going to nourish, all that's going to nourish me. And the reality is, even if it's there, much of it is going to pass right through your digestive tract. If you're not, if, if you're not healthy, and if your food isn't processed properly. Yeah. And so what do we look for in corn? Like, is there a, uh, is there a, a line, a word we can look for, or do we have to really make it our, ourselves at home the way you're talking? No, about there, there's a couple things you can do. Um, and I, and I know some of these conversations seem so complicated, but, and, but first of all, instead of being um, exhausted by listening to something like this, get excited because it's interesting, yeah. right? Yeah. But also, you know, you have the ability to inform yourself and make these decisions and make really profound changes. And these kind of changes aren't the change that well, you make that change and you feel better in a week. This is the kind of change that culminates over days and months and, and years, right? Yeah. Um, and you and just, just as importantly, in, in your children and the rest of your family. So the if you come, if you start from the perspective that maize is incredibly difficult for the human body to derive nutrition from, and it must be processed properly, then all of a sudden, almost all of the corn products you have access to um, are off the table, right? Right. Um, or at least aren't going to deliver all the nutrition that, that it can. Um, the best way to do it, I, and, I, and I say, and I truly mean this, and this sounds exhausting too, but again, I find it exciting, but it's it's empowering is, is the right word. If you eat a lot of corn, then you know what? Just tamalize once. Just do it one time in your kitchen. It'll take literally a couple hours. Mm. Try it. Deal with it. If you never do it again, you you know more than anything that I could tell you. And then it, it'll help you read labels and deal with things. But um, aside from that, and we have instructions in the book on how to do it. I was going to say, do you teach it? it? Yeah. Do you teach oh, it? Oh, yeah. In the we book? teach it. And yeah. We, yeah. We teach it in the book and we have a, a bunch of different recipes uh, for nishtamalized maize. And then when we do it here, we go through the entire process and then we make tortillas and we make tamales and we make grits and we make all sorts of things, all sorts of things with it. Um, atole. But if you're trying to buy something that is at least nishtamalized, believe it or not, there is, there is something and it's called maseka or dried masa flour. Um, the problem, and it's, it's actually in most grocery stores, you can find it. And mm. if it's not at, by the regular where all the other regular, right, all the flowers and things are go over to the Hispanic section. Um, and mm-hmm. then you can find it there. There is one downside though. 
of Tomaseka. It, so it's it's been processed properly. The problem is it's almost always degerminated. So it's the equivalent of white flour compared to whole wheat flour. Um, yeah. And the reason they do it is the same reason you do it with flour is because as soon as you break that germ, you release the oils and the oils can turn rancid and it has a shorter shelf life. Yeah. So it's you all about it, um, so you're getting this time, you're getting like a nistamala. It's like you're getting a sourdough white bread, 100% right. white flour sourdough bread. Whereas compared to uh, the kind of version I'm talking about would be a sourdough whole wheat loaf, right. <laughs> or something like that. So are we better off just skipping it? I mean, I, I can say in what I just learned in the last 15 minutes from you, I'm like, okay, so if I go out to a restaurant and there's corn on the menu. The first thing I typically look for is, is it organic, non-GMO? But what I'm now hearing is if I'm going to eat it, just realize that it's 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 a taste food. It's not going yeah. to be anything that's going to contribute to my health in that moment. Not significantly contribute to your health. I mean, you can almost think of it as empty calories, just empty carb empty calories. calories. There, yeah. It really is. Now, yeah. with tortilla chips, just very quickly, because semantics here are very important. Yeah. Um, and this is, this is so crazy. Uh, a tortilla chip, if it's called a tortilla chip, according to the FDA, it has to be nistamalized. Unfortunately, it, 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 so it has to have gone through that process. Unfortunately, it's almost always that degerminated version, but it has been nistamalized. If it says corn chip, it's not. It's, it's like, a, like a Frito, for example, would be just straight corn, but a tortilla chip will have gone through it, but it's the white flour. But here's the, here's the sticking point, and this is where it's, by definition, according to the FDA, a tortilla chip has to be fried in vegetable oil. It has to be called a tortilla chip. Yes. It has Which to be fried in vegetable oil. inflammatory, just so everybody, let's yeah. just point, so let's you, just, yeah. You can't that fry it like in the, lard. Yeah. That's so that'll we, make you insulin resistant really quickly. And here, what we do at the Modern Sunday Kitchen, you know, we 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 nistamalize every week. We have a, a Molino where we stone grind, and then we we hand press tortillas and and sell those and put those in some of some of our meals. But we also then take those and fry them in lard. And now that is a completely different food. It is nistamalized whole grain maize heirloom maize that we import from Oaxaca, and then um, fry in animal fat. That's a food. Now it's not something I eat. Tons of, but that's a food that is something that we, I, I have no problem feeding my kids. Yeah. Amazing. And your recipes, by the way, in Eat Like a Human, unbelievable. I, it takes a lot to wow me on a recipe because we, we love, we love to cook. And I was like, <laughs> when, when I looked at all the fermented products, I was like, oh my gosh, this is gold. Like this book, I, I hope people realize that it's not just a book that's going to educate you on things like this, but it's a cookbook yeah. too. Right. And that was, yeah. that's the intent. There's, there's host, hopefully a huge takeaway. And those recipes are the recipes that literally my family is built on, not only yeah. from, you know, sort of that emotional sort of heritage perspective, but also physically that we're built yeah. on. It's just, we cook all yeah. the time. I, I also have to tell you, Bill, I love watching you guys on social media um, because I love how you and your family show up. It, it really hits my heart because this is Thank how you. we are with our, with our kids. You know, we just want to do everything with them. We, it, we're foodies. We, we love adventures and it's just, it's really sweet to watch family online. So thank you so much. You know, I know we're seeing the highlight reels, but it's <laughs> yeah. still, the highlight reel looks good. So. <laughs> well, thank you very much. We work hard on it. <laughs> yeah. So I've teamed up with Tony Horton. 
Do you know Tony Horton? He was the creator of P90X, one of the most revolutionary at-home fitness programs. And we created together a new fitness program called Power Sync 60. And it is literally, this program's never been done. It is a revolutionary 60-day program for both men and women. So here's why I want you to join us, is that we literally created PowerSync 60 with you in mind. So it doesn't matter if you're a cycling woman, a postmenopausal woman, or a man, one of the things I brought to Tony was that when we work out, we have to think about our hormones. And he had never done that in the millions of workouts that he's created in his lifetime. We also included a free bonus meal plan and a customized tailor way you can eat right for yourself. Also, of course, we put some fasting in there and it was a beautiful meeting of the minds. So I, it, this is like a passion project that I'm so excited to share with you. And in order to get it, all you got to do is visit drmindy.org and use the code PS60PELS. So PS60 and then my last name, PELS, P-E-L-Z, to get 20% off. And you get lifetime access to the program. So that's drmindy.org and you use the code PS60PELS to join all of us. I'm actually doing this myself right now. So come join me, my community on this incredible journey. I am so proud to bring this to you. So, okay, now you have to go into okay. insects with me. Now, let me, let me tell you a little story on my end on the insect thing. There a while ago, this was about mm, seven years ago, mm -hmm. there was a set of chips that came out that were like uh, cricket chips. Chirps chips. But, yeah, chirps chips. Yep, chirps chips. So, okay, so I turned, when I found about out about them, my son must have been like in eighth grade at the time. And I said, hey, would you eat, cr you know, cricket chips with me? And he's like, sure. So I ordered a bunch of them. We ate them. They were really good. I didn't have like bug legs hanging out my mouth or anything like that. So help us understand why insects are so such an important part of our diet. Um, and how do we start to bring these back in? Like, do yeah. I just walk outside and pick up a bug and <laughs> cook it in my house? So <laughs> I, insects were have been in our diets longer than just about anything else. I mean, we, we were and, and many people believe that, including me, that insect, before we started creating tools, insects were the most nutritious thing in our diet. And without them, we wouldn't have been doing much of, of what we're doing. And there, I went to a great presentation at the Smithsonian, oh, about six or seven years ago. Uh, uh, gosh, I forget the, the woman's name who gave the presentation. Brilliant. But she was talking about how important insects are in mammal diets in general, but mostly humans and our ancestors. And she did a lot of work with chimpanzees and also important mm. chimpanzees. And she was saying that the most nutrient needy time in a woman's life is when she's lactating, even more so than when oh. she's pregnant. And she had a, I love that she showed this picture of a, a, a chimpanzee nursing and eating ants or termites off a stick at the same time. It was, it was perfect. It like drove every, everything Amazing. home. But um, it, it is true. They're in, incredibly nourishing They're And just as important, and we just had this whole conversation about maize, they're incredibly, the nutrients in the, in the insects are incredibly bioavailable. So the nutrients mm. are there and our body has access to them without doing very much work at all. So from a nutritional standpoint, they're definitely a win. And 
uh, at least, in, and I can't speak for all insects. Um, I, I do a lot of work with crickets right now because that's what we're using for the base of some of the foods that we're creating here. But uh, crickets have all essential or all nine essential amino acids, Amazing. plus a ton of other things. But they have, and many insects have really high quality fat in them as well. So, but from an environmental uh, and, and uh, sustainability perspective, they are, you look at all numbers about how much water goes into growing a pound of meat and how much acreage you need for the animal and all that, uh, not only the resources that are getting consumed, what is uh, compared to the output of the nutrients, but also the waste that's part of that, you know, insects blow those numbers off the charts. I mean, they are incredibly sustainable. They're incredibly easy to grow. A anything that comes out of them is usable in a number of different ways. And they're incredibly, uh, incredibly nutritious. So the, the hard part is most of us were brought up to fear insects or to hate insects or to kill them and throw them away or just get them away from us at best. Um, not to eat them. So there's yeah, a we, huge mental leap. We have leap. swatters for them. We have like, we, <laughs> we, build we all like kinds of them with our foot. Like you're right. We have totally villainized them. So to turn around and eat them is like a 180 degree turn in our mental thinking, it, it, not the way we approach this. And it, and it was for me too. And, and the story was, uh, we started, and I, I've read about this a little bit in the book, but um, what now is it? I was in graduate school. It was a long time ago. It was, it was almost 20, <laughs> it was almost 20 years ago. I was defending my dissertation. Um, I'm sorry. No, let me back up. Um, I was teaching, I was in graduate school and I was teaching a graduate class and we were talking about insects as in, in, in our ancestral human diets and then insects today and all the kind of things we just, just briefly mentioned. And I hate to speak about or teach anything that I haven't done or experienced at some level. And I know that's a, a really tall order to try to do, but it's important for me to be able to do that. And here I'm talking about insects and I've never had them. So mm. my wife and I were, were at the time we're, we're newly married. We had no money. We're both in graduate school. And I said, I'm going to buy some insects. And she's and at the, she was a vegetarian at the time. And she's like, Man, what do you mean buying insects? You can use our money to buy insects? And I said, yeah. And by the way, the and this was a while ago. Now there's a lot, not a lot, but there's places we can really high quality insects we can get in the US and Canada and other places. Um, but at the time there was none, none of that. And I said, yeah, the only place I can get them is, is from Thailand. So the shipping is out of control. And she's like, no. And I'm like, come on, don't tell me no. I'm teaching here. This I need to do this. And oh we actually, we, we've we can literally count the number of arguments that we've had on, on one hand, like real arguments. This was one of them. And, <laughs> we, and uh, I finally, I guess you don't really win an argument, but I won that piece of it and we got them and I brought them and I had them. And it really started a, an important conversation between me and Christina. And then when I did, when I defended my dissertation a few years later, we actually brought, you know, it was her idea. We brought a bunch of insects for everybody to try. Um, and then it really sort of became a thing. And, and part of it for me was, can I overcome this sort mm. of fear or you know, cultural block that I had mm -hmm. of, of eating these. And yeah, I mean, I will put, I'll try anything. I'll put yeah. about anything in my mouth, but can I do it and enjoy it? Because right. that, that's part of it. Can I do it and not only derive nutrition from it, but, but be, be fulfilled mm -hmm. by eating it. And I can now, and it took yeah. a lot of work. It really truly did, but there's a lot of ways to do it. Now, there are some incredible um, um, insect farms that are growing insects for human consumption around the world. Interesting. There are laws changing left and right. In fact, the EU um, just changed uh, an important food law. I think it was two years ago that allowed 
I believe, mealworms um, to raise at some status. And now they can be shipped from country to country and be used in restaurants and foods and things like that. Um, and a lot of things are changing. And there's there was a big push, like you mentioned a few years ago with uh, Chirp's Chips at the same time. Uh, there was a guy named Pat Crowley who won, not Chirp's Chips and Pat Crowley both won or did whatever on Shark Tank and got funded oh, for their projects. He, he came out with something called Chapul uh, Bars which were fantastic. And there were a couple other versions of these. And every now and then at some Whole Foods or some health food stores, you could see them. And there was a little bit of a rise of it for about a year or two. And then it started to decline. Mm. It kind of was a fad thing maybe, but now it is finally starting to get mm. the, to receive the attention that it deserves. And some of that attention is because of sustainability reasons. And some of it is as a result of nutritional reasons. Mm-hmm. It's something we really need to pay attention to. And if you are really trying to change your health and at the same time, um, you know, meet or exceed other important obligations and expectations of uh, eating in a sustainable way and in an ethical way, then this is, I think, something that's worthy of, of, of your time to do. And so are all insects, do they pack the same amino acid punch? Like, how do you choose which insect? And like, I know when I've been at a Mexican restaurant before and there's like grasshoppers mm-hmm. on the, on the menu, I always, I'm, I'm all up for an adventure, so I'll order it. And the one time I did it, like the grasshopper <laughs> legs, I'm not joking. They were like in my teeth. Yeah. I'm like, okay, this talk about not enjoying it. Not only did it not taste like anything, I had grasshopper legs in my teeth for like the rest of the day. Yeah. And that's not enjoyable. It's no, not. <laughs> it's not a good look. It's not know, a good look for me. <laughs> Or an enjoyable experience. Um, uh, Seinfeld's wife came out with a book years ago, and it was kind of like how to hide nutrients in your kids' foods or something like that. And it was like how to make like brownies with um, uh, broccoli in them so you can get broccoli in your kids and they don't know it. And I really had a huge problem with it because part of the eating is yes, I want to nourish my family, but I also want them to know what they're eating and I want them to know why they're eating. And I want mm-hmm. to, to sort of build on one another. Um, and the, I feel, and I brought bring that up because I feel the site kind of the same way with insects. There's a couple different approaches to, to putting insects in, into your diet. I know some people who have started companies um, where they're sort of making or using cricket powder, cricket fire, yep. which is nothing more than crickets that are roasted and dried and ground up into a meal. And you can stick it in just about anything. You can put it in. A, the, you can make the most amazing protein shake on the planet. You can stick it in baked goods. You can do it all, excuse me, all sorts of things with it, which is awesome for getting the nutrients where they need to be. It does nothing about creating a big, larger understanding about the role of insects in our diets and that sort of, mm. you know, th- those other sorts of things. So I, um, we went and we talk about this in the book. We went to Thailand as a family uh, several years ago because I wanted to experience three different things. I wanted the entire family to experience three different things. And most of the research we did for the book um, was done as an entire family because I I know my brain is wired in, in a certain way. but And I wanted to experience the things we were experiencing, not only through my eyes, but through my wife's eyes and through mm-hmm. my kids' eyes. Um, because I wanted to be able to bring that information back and 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 reach a much larger audience than I would as a forty something year old man, and I thought and and it's really really worked and and really broadened my my outlook on a lot of That's these things. Cool. When we went to Thailand, the three things I wanted uh, the family to experience was I wanted to go to some of the major markets in in Bangkok and just see what 
a normal everyday person was buying and how they were purchasing and consuming insects, which there was huge stalls of insects um, uh, in, in some of these markets. I wanted to go to a, a rural area in Thailand and um, where there's more traditional consumption and, and production of insects going on. We went to an, a, 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 weaver, a weaver ant farm in, uh, in a place called Fitzanulik. And then I wanted to go, there was a amazing chef. His name is uh, Chef Thet, I believe, who had a restaurant called Bo- Insects in the Backyard. Oh and gosh. the entire restaurant, and it, I don't know if it had a Michelin star or not. It should have. What? But he was doing the exact opposite of hiding cricket powder in pasta. He was actually celebrating the insects. He was, he wouldn't have never given an insect leg that would have stuck in your teeth, but he was <laughs> celebrating, you know, the plating was revolved around the way the insects looked. He wasn't hiding anything. He was, you know, the, he was uh, celebrating the textures and the flavors and the nuances of different insects in all of these dishes, the way they should be celebrated, just like we do the same thing with certain vegetables and meats and those yeah. sorts of things. It was brilliant. But what struck me, and I think this was a big takeaway, um, and I don't want to give anything away, but I'm going to because it's that important. We made a deal with my youngest daughter, Alyssa, that um, she wanted to go to this thing called the Unicorn Cafe in Bangkok. Um, and she and she promised us that she would eat all the insects we put in front of her if we brought her to the Unicorn Cafe. Now, we made the worst parenting mistake on the planet. We brought her to the Unicorn Cafe first because it worked on our schedule better. So we gave oh, her no. the reward before she did oh, any of the no. work. Oh, <laughs> no. That's Parenting 101. Oh, I know. And it was, it was so bad. But we went to this thing, and it was horrible. I mean, it looked like unicorns threw up. I was just going to all... say, it oh, was no, so, I feel it was... like it's the opposite of anything you stand for. It is. It is. <laughs> but I really wanted her to experience the, the, the other side. So she did that first. Then, no matter where we were, she wouldn't do it. Like she wouldn't eat the insects, even at this amazing restaurant, she wouldn't eat them. Uh, we were with a guy that was doing, making some of the pasta. Like I mentioned, he was actually an Italian guy living in Bangkok that had started a company hiding cricket flour and pasta. She ate like one piece. But when we, the last, our last stop was to that village in the middle of nowhere. We had to take it, it took us forever to get there. And we spent all day harvesting these uh, weaver ant eggs. And then the entire village came out and we spent the entire day cooking and preparing all these dishes with the village. So nothing was hidden from her. In fact, she helped prepare the dishes with all these people. And when we sat down to eat, there was nothing she didn't eat. And it was all about the context. It was, Uh you know, we, we put her in an incredibly safe, Real, I, I, I mean, we just met these people, but it was a loving and caring situation. It fostered nothing but like human relationships. She cooked alongside of all these people. It was an amazing day and then sat down and ate the meal. And that was what put her, not put her over the edge, but helped her take that next step. That's and crazy. it was brilliant. It was so, magical. So I have two questions on that. One, how do we travel with you? <laughs> Because I know, sign me up. Next time you guys are going somewhere, I want to go with you. That sounds amazing. And then my second question is, okay, so how how do we get insects into our diet here in America? Or, you know, we do have a worldwide audience, but sure. most people don't have access to a, a, a chef who specializes in insects. <laughs> 
Right. So let, let me let me answer both those questions. The first one is, and, and it's actually a timely question. Um, COVID has thrown a wrench in the, in, into a lot right. of things, as you know. Um, we are launching very soon, and please keep an eye out on in, on both my website, eatlikeahuman.com, and our family's website, uh, the Modern Stone Age Kitchen. We are um, re putting back together because we had everything planned right before COVID hit. We are going to start off by running hopefully three trips a year, um, food, culture, history, archaeology, anthropology related trips, um, one to Ireland, one to Oaxaca, and one to Kenya. Amazing. Um, and then we're hoping to expand on that. But those are the first ones just because we know those areas so well and we have really good contacts and the stories and the food are just I- incredible. Well, so, sign me sign me up. Okay, uh, perfect. And let us know. We're we're in a new phase of our life. Our kids, one's in college, one's living out on her own in her early 20s. And we're, so we're empty nesters. And so we're looking for more adventures. So we will definitely join you on one of those. And maybe those we'll bring be. them along with us. But <laughs> oh, but if I if I tell my children we're going to go to Kenya and eat insects, I think, I think one of them would be pretty excited. The other might be a little apprehensive. Eat insects, drink some blood milk. We'll be all set. Right. I remember Perfect. the blood milk story. I asked you, and just to fill everybody in, you guys can go listen to the podcast I did with Bill a couple of years ago, but I asked him what the what the most interesting thing he's ever eaten. And you told me it was blood, it was milk mixed with blood from a cow and that it cha- tasted like chocolate milk. It That's did. all I remember. Chocolate milk with a little bit of iron in it. <laughs> with a little bit of iron. Amazing. Iron. Amazing. So, okay. So, but ha- how do we insects. get it here in America? Cause I, I, I really, I'm, I'm with you on this idea. And I also don't know if you know that when you get 30 grams of protein at one sitting into your body, you trigger an amino acid uh, receptor sensor in your muscles that force like opens up that muscle for those amino acids to go in Hmm. and make that muscle function better. But the, but the threshold is somewhere between 25 to 30 grams at one time. Okay. So that's what the research says. So they are now saying, you know, muscle is the organ of longevity. I can tell you women over 40, as they go through menopause, really have to focus on muscle. So if insects become this power protein amino acid punch, it really can help with our need to really add more protein into our diet. Absolutely. So there's a couple things. This is the perfect time to have this conversation. If we had this conversation even two years ago, um, it'd be difficult for me to even help you find good sources Mm. of insects. Uh, But over the past few years, more and more have been popping up, uh, more and more facilities that are actually raising these insects for, for human consumption. So when I started, I was other than shipping stuff from Thailand uh, and, and, and real quick, the reason we went to Thailand is because I wanted to go to the place that we got the very first insects that we ate. There's a lot of places we could, we certainly could have gone. Um, but that was, that was why, but, um, then we started eating a lot of insects from bait shops, which isn't a really good thing from to do. Bait, but- wait, 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 Stop from bait shops. Like, bait shops, like, yes. Like I mean, you go fishing, and so you you brought them home yeah. to the family. Where else you go get things like <laughs> bait shops and pet food shops? I mean, that's where you get mealworms and and crickets and grasshoppers oh God, and it. all those things. So that those aren't raised for human consumption, and I don't suggest that. Um, so the, the the choices you really have are one: are you going to go out and, and harvest these things yourself, which you can, uh, and I and I think it's amazing. 
Be careful though, because insects can very easily take in toxins and pass I on wondered, toxins from their yeah. environment. Yeah. So if you're Especially living in the middle household. of household, yes. Yeah. So I, so most people, I would never want to sort of unempower somebody by suggesting that you can't go get some food yourself, but I, I am suggesting that you have a responsibility and, and, and a need to figure out where these, ins- first of all, not only to identify them properly, but also, you know, where um, these insects are living and mm-hmm. uh, where they're getting their own food from. Right. So uh, the easiest and safest way to go about it, especially when, when, when you're starting out is to find a place that's raising insects for human consumption. Okay. Um, and more and more are popping up. Uh, the, the one that we use all the time because we have a relationship with them anyhow, and I just love what they do is Entomo Farms, E-N-T-O-M-O. Entomo, right. like entomophagy is the consumption of insects. So um, Jared Golden runs that place. It's very funny because his brothers all started raising insects for bait shops and for pet food stores. He's like, I'm going to raise insects for humans. And he's doing amazing. That's um, awesome. But even if, so I have a couple other places in the book um, where you can go ahead and look very easily and find them. The cool thing is when I was teaching at Washington College, every year we would do an insect um, meal or an insect offerings, we would cook a bunch of insects and, and, and serve them for, and, and provide a bunch of information about the health and, and, and uh, environmental reasons to be consuming insects. And it started at health department was like, you can't do this. Like, no. And the only reason they let us do it at all is because we we're in, in a closed, we were kind of a gray area because it was a closed community and we weren't like advertising to the public and all this, but she kept saying, no, you can't do this. And they, they kept hiding me under the steps to go up to the cafeteria. They, we had this little table under the steps and it kept making me so angry because I just, I, I wanted to, to, to show that this is actually real food and everything right. everybody was making me do was showing that it was this weird thing. Right. And I kept pushing the health department, pushing the health department until she finally dove in deep and she found out that insects right now in the U.S. are classified as GRAS, which means generally regarded as safe. Oh, yeah. It has the same designation as salt and pepper. So you can't, as long as they're coming from an approved source, as long as they're coming from a place that's growing insects for human consumption, you can not you can you can serve them. You can make them. We certainly we sell insect related foods here at the Modern Stone Age Kitchen. And what was very cool is you know we under we were under the steps for like eight years, and then finally we were freed. And the next year we built a, a mock up taco truck up in the dining hall, and people got tacos from us. And the next year they gave us an entire station in the dining hall one day. And so it really I was so proud because it was like you can go and get this that you consider food, this that you consider food, or this that is actually also food. So um, amazing. It, yeah, there's a lot. So a lot we the, can do. the modern stone age kitchen is, can people order online? Again, we have a worldwide audience. So. Yes. So we, yes, it, so we have two, Christina and I, uh, I left the college in June. Yeah. Congrats. Um, thank you very much. It was, it was a very good move because um, we have been able, we, we've had so many dreams about doing everything we can do and power and nourish community that we've been able to yeah. take the steps we need to, to do that. Um, we have the Eastern Shore Food Lab, which is what I started through the college years ago, has, has now become a nonprofit. And so all of our teaching and research and outreach is uh, goes is done through that. And then our for-profit food production, the Modern Stone Age Kitchen, uh, is actually downstairs. And we have a storefront there. Uh, we do deliveries. We uh, we do the market car- uh, farmers markets. But yes, we do have. We're, we're expanding our our shipping. 
And okay. some of the insect things that we're creating, uh, we will be shipping very soon as well. So yeah. that you can find at Modern Science Kitchen. Yeah. And well, I saw that actually on one of your posts on Instagram that there was like a, it looked like a little fat bomb of it insects. Was. And, and the, of course, my little fasting brain was like, oh my gosh, that would be perfect to break a fast with because it's high protein, yeah. high fat. What's that call? I, I, I meant to order some. I just saw it we, like at 10 o'clock. We one call night. them cr- uh, cricket protein bombs, we call them, but it really is, it's fat and protein is, is really what it is. Amazing. Um, very, very little carbohydrates. We have, a, we, we, it's sweetened a little bit or a little bit, not a lot. There's a little bit of dates and a little bit of raw honey, but that's yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But perfect to break a fast with. Absolutely. Because when I, we're, I'm doing a lot of teaching right now, and actually I dedicated a whole chapter to it in my new book on the importance of what you break your fast with, hmm. because like you, what I, where our, both of our work comes together is I love fasting so that we can mimic our primal ancestors and we can go into these feast famine cycling style of eating. And yet what I see when I'm teaching fasting to the modern world is that people are breaking their fast with toxic food and it's not hard to get toxic food to your point on maize. I mean, it's easy to get toxic food. I mean, you have to really be conscious to get not toxic food. So I'm always trying to come up with new ideas for breaking a fast and protein is an amazing way to do it. Um, and I looked at those, what do they call them? Cricket balls, cricket fat bombs. I would call them cricket protein bombs. We we were calling them cricket balls, but that didn't go for very well. No, maybe not. (laughs) Yeah. But that would be a perfect thing to break a fast with, because if you look at just the two states of healing in the body, when Mm -hmm. you go into a fast, you go into what we call autophagy, where the cells are cleaning themselves out and making themselves uh, more efficient. But on the other end of that is a cellular process called mTOR. And mTOR builds up your mitochondria, powers up your cells, can build you up muscle. But they, they're like night and day. They can't exist at the same time. Mm-hmm. So when you go into a fasted state and then you take something like these cricket treats and you break your fast with that, you've now literally have the best of both worlds and you're mimicking what our ancestors did. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, the, I'm so glad you said that. It, it's got me my mind spinning right now. But there's so we have three teenagers and it is so hard to have a snack in the house that we believe in. Like yeah. something Amen. that you can just pop into your mouth that's actually slightly storable, that has the nutrients that we want and and doesn't have any of the bad mm-hmm. stuff in it. This is one of the few things that we actually have in our house. I mean, the, the, that we, we believe in and have and, and love Amazing. when they eat. So, Amazing. and the other thing we are committed, anything that, you know, it, it's so funny because we spent, Christina spent all this time trying to do a whole, really the reason we did almost all the research that we did was trying to learn how to just feed our own family. Right. And then, you know, we certainly, there's still a lot to learn, no doubt, but we wanted, we, we've been very happy uh, with what we figured out. So we wanted to share it through the book, which is what we did. And now we get to turn that book and make it into reality. And we're making all the things from the book here at the, yeah. at the shop, but we're committed that you know, our, our number one priority is to empower people 
to take this into their own hands and do it themselves. Agreed. So those cricket bombs, those both, they're actually, that recipe is in the book and we're making it here. And if, and for anybody listening, if there's something that we have and you want the recipe too, and you don't find it there, ask us, we're happy to share. I'd much, I would love for you to make it yourself. And if you, if you don't want to, or you can't then ask us and then we'll make, we'll make it for you. But that's, that's really what we're, we're looking to do. And what I would love to do is look, I'm going to go back and look at those recipes with a fresh eye and go look at the, um, Modern Stone Age Kitchen website. Did I say that right? That's right. Yes. Okay. And look at what would be perfect for breaking a fast. Because again, where you and I geek out together here is mimicking this primal ancestor and how do we thrive in the modern world? So those foods sound perfect to break a fast with. So I'm going to, this is a to be continued conversation where I'm going to look at your food and match it to my fast. And let's come up with like the perfect, like feast famine cycling experience for a human. Awesome. I love it. I love Wouldn't every that part great? of that. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. To be continued. Okay. To be continued. Yes. You have to, we can't finish this conversation without a good old explanation of Ash. Um, <laughs> you, that in your book was another thing that I, it was brilliant because I've, we have a green egg in the back of now in our house mm-hmm. and the, my husband and son love the green egg and there's a lot of ash there. So is ash from a fire? something we should be looking at as a healing t- food or a healing tool? And how would we use it? It de- Yes. If it, and it depends on what the fire was, was built yes. on, right? Just so, like the insects, just like the insects. So um, if you're burning you, uh, usually conifers, which most people don't burn, but things like spruce or hemlock or pine, um, there's a lot of issues with the residues left behind from the resins and, mm. and those sorts of things. So most of the time that ash is not desirable. And if you're burning pressure treated wood or painted wood or those mm-hmm. sorts of things, then that ash is not, yeah. is more toxic than it is helpful at all. So like Dura flame, the ash Dura flame, Dura flame. <laughs> not what we're talking about here, but a, a good old fashioned fire made from a hardwood, like hickory or, or, or oak or maple or something like that is a completely different thing. Now there is a difference and these terms often get confused between charcoal and ash, Mm, right? Ash is what happens when um, something organic burns in the presence of oxygen and that's what's left. So if you had a burning log and you just let it burn, you had a pile of that really kind of gray feathery stuff. And if the wind blows, it kind of just goes Mm -hmm. everywhere. That's ash. If um, you put something in high heat in the absence of oxygen, you create charcoal, it carbonizes. So, So if you maybe had a campfire Actually, most if you have a camp a campfire with a bunch of logs, and then you know it's burning, you go to bed, you wake up the next day, and you have probably a bunch of this feathery ash around the outside. That's what most of the you know the, the wood burned completely down. But then you have a couple of logs that maybe didn't fully burn, and you turn it over, and on the bottom it's like really black and it looks like a charcoal briquette. Yep. That's charcoal because that would didn't have any oxygen because it was sitting against the ground, right? Mm. So they're two different things. Um, and they often get confused. They have different properties. Uh, ash itself is uh, fairly, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Alkaline. Mm-hmm. And was used in the past for all sorts of different things. Ash, but and believe it or not, one of the first things, uh, one of the first chemical leaveners that ever was ash. Ash, you know, baking soda 
in the presence of an acid. So baking soda is alkaline and bake and vinegar is acid. You put it together and you make the volcanoes like in third grade, you put it together and you make pancakes, you put it together and you make muffins. I mean, those are, but the origin that, that is actually a chemical version of ash. Ash is alkaline. Ash, it was, it was a, a chemical leavener for things. Ash, a refined version of ash called pot ash worked even better. And a more refined version of that called pearl ash was actually what we started to make synthetically in the 1800s to make baking soda. So um, you can actually bake with ash. You can make soap with ash. You can uh, put ash on the outside of uh, and cheese to make uh, have different kinds of things happen. So in your part of the world, uh, I've had that. Hum- hum- I think I've fa- been in Napa Valley drinking uh, wine and eating cheese with ash. Yeah. So they do it for two reasons with ash. There's there's some there's some French cheeses that um, it would take a farmer two days to make to get enough milk to make that cheese. So they'd actually milk the cows make the curds, press them, get them ready. But then they wanted to keep the flies off them before the next day's milking and they'd cover it with ash and then they'd do the next one. And then they'd, you'd kind of have that line in the middle and that was it. But quite often you see ash on soft cheeses, like different kinds of goat cheeses for aged goat cheeses. And what happens is cheese is acidic. It's gone through a, a fermentation process. And when you, so you take that acid and you put an alkaline substance like ash on the outside, it changes the pH, it neutralizes it, and it allows other things to grow on the outside um, for different types of effects for the cheese. So you're changing that pH with with the ash. Um, Charcoal, on the other hand, is like a a, a natural detoxifier. Yeah, I was going to say, we use charcoal in our detox programs. It's a really good binder. It's amazing, right? Yeah. And 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 if you you know if you overdose on something, one of the first things they do when you go to the hospital is they give you charcoal. I mean, it it, it is incredible, and it has we've used it for so many things uh, for, for so 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 very long. Um, both of those foods have been in our both of those things have been in our diets since we've had access to fire. I, there's no doubt. I mean, they just right. by 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 mistake and also on purpose. So ash. It was is was the original um, thing that was used in mishtamalizing of maize to sort of mm. you know b- bring it back to that. Right. Um, it's used, like I said, it used to make soap, used to make all sorts of different things. Um, one of the easiest things to do ash wise is actually if you have any leftover herbs, you know, burn them, literally burn them, put them in it, put them in your oven. I, I talk about it in the book, put them in your oven at a high temperature until they literally burn and turn to ash. And they've or, and they've become a storable seasoning now. And there's a lot of high end restaurants doing just that. The reason I put this in, and and we had a long discussion with the publisher whether this chapter even should be in the book. I said, absolutely. Listen, I am asking people if they're going to take that step to rethink what real food really means and and turn to the past as sort of you know a framework for for this understanding. I mean, we're still living in these Stone Age bodies. Um, let's talk about all of it. And we yeah. still didn't talk about everything. I mean, pre-masticating our food and all those sorts of, there's all sorts of things we could have talked about, but I wanted to sort of push that a little bit. So it's earth, ash, and charcoal. And, and you know, ash is important. Charcoal is important. Earth is incredibly important as well. I mean, there's certain like kinds of, like dirt, like clay, clay. Yeah. Almost every animal on the planet eats clay. And they do it for two main reasons. One is to um, get different kinds of minerals that they're not getting yeah. in their normal diet. Pica. And, Pica, do you remember? I was one of the yes. things I remember learning like early on, like people who eat dirt had a mineral deficiency and it's a legitimate thing called pica. It's, it's legitimate. Absolutely. Yeah. 
and, and but it's not like you're eating lead paint chips off the no. windowsill. It's, it's you're eating something that your body actually needs. Yeah. And the other reason is because clay binds with all sorts of toxins and allows those toxins to safely pass through their bo- your body. And it's actually yeah. used in a bunch of traditional cooking. So, um, so there's how do and, we eat that? <laughs> there's, listen, <laughs> it's great. So we, we talk, there, it is in the book, like you mentioned. It, there it, there are actually books on just including these things in your diet. There's not a lot about charcoal and ash, except for, you know, little mentions here and there in other applications like cheese making books, for example, Mm -hmm. and the like. There are entire books on um, clay and you can actually, the the cool thing is you can go to Amazon and buy ash, food grade ash, food grade charcoal and activated charcoal and also um, food grade clay as well. And do you have recipes in the book on how we cook with those? Absolutely. Yes. I, Wait, I recipes, does it go I in, recipes. You have a recipe for everything. Uh, does it go <laughs> into like a bread? Like I'm trying to, is it act like a flour? Is that where you would put it? What The clay? All of it. Clay, the um, charcoal and the ash it probably all have well, a little we, different texture. We unfortunately, um, charcoal is not on the GRAS list. Ah. In, in fact, uh, it, for even though it's been on our diets forever, and even though if somebody's sick, it's one of the first things we give them. And even though you can buy food grade charcoal all over the world, um, it just isn't on on the list. And but I will tell you, we are actively working with the FDA right now to try to get it on there. But wow. it, so several things happened. There was a huge festival. Um, and they, they sort of looked the other way for a long time. There was a huge festival, I believe, it was in San Francisco about ten years ago called. Um, or maybe a little more recent, but it was called 50 Shades of Charcoal. And (laughs) all the chefs had charcoal in every dish that they presented there. Mm -hmm. And it it caused this big uproar. It was was widely accepted by everybody that went, but the FDA went nuts. And then a bunch of, right afterwards, a bunch of chefs in New York City were using charcoal in a lot of their cooking, which you can go all over the world and see charcoal intentionally put into food. Um, pastas, breads. There's a traditional Italian bread uh, around Easter time. It's a black bread that's made with charcoal in it. And it's very um, adsorbent and helpful with removing toxins from your bodies. It's wonderful, but it is a, as a result of the chef's using, it is actually illegal to use charcoal in a restaurant in New York city any longer. Um, it's, and we started when we launched the sourdough bread company, we, one of our first products that was most widely received was charcoal crackers, which were they were, they tasted great. They looked cool. Even people around here who grew up on nothing but like meat and potatoes, love them. And then we were told we weren't allowed to make them and sell them anymore. So the recipe for them is in the book because you can make them in, in your own home. Um, so charcoal is easily put into all sorts of baked goods. It's easily put into things like shakes and the like. Um, Does ash, it change? Does it change if you cook it? Like if you heat these, all of these up? Uh, will the temperature change the the healing property? For those, no, unless, you know, the activated charcoal is brought up to a super high temperature. Um, I believe there's some chemicals involved in making it activated. And all activated means is, you know, the reason charcoal is so incredibly um, adsorbent is because it has all these caverns. I mean, it's just like, it's nothing but a shell of caves and everything can get stuck up in there. And activated charcoal just has more of those, has more of that open space on the inside. And there's a couple of ways that they make that happen. But no, I mean, with a lot of things like um, 
uh, baking soda, for example, if you heat that, it does chemically change to something mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. Um, but ash, I mean, these have already been through the heat process. Nothing you're going to do in your oven true. is beyond what, what it's, yeah. what it's been through already. Yeah. Yeah. So fascinating. What, and, um, do you feel like when we look at these three categories, um, I feel like we've got two sides of the health equation. We've got the destruction that food is doing to our health, just normal food walking into a, a, a grocery store is no longer the same food that we had years ago. So we have this modern made version of food in our supermarket, and then we're missing these key things like ash and insects, and then just the way corn should properly be made. Do you feel like if we brought just, let's just take those three things. If we could just bring them back into our diet, it's powerful enough to overcome the lack of nutrients that we're getting in from our normal food that we're buying at a supermarket. That is an awesome question. I I don't know if it'll overcome all of it, but I think two things are going to happen at the same time. That's going to allow it allow that the the issues to be overcome. One is yes, you will get an influx of nutrition. Your body can actually do something with that will work wonders. No doubt. I don't know if it'll overcome all of the issues, but at the same time, by opening your mind and including things like properly processed maize, some insects, maybe some things that are on the fringe, like some earth and ash or some charcoal, you're putting your mind in a different state to look at your entire diet through a different lens and probably take whatever steps are necessary to overcome the rest of it. But yeah, those are, those are great steps, no doubt. And the insect one is so easy to take. And I know some people are sitting here cringing, cringing, but we eat them as kids. I mean, we actually pull insects out of our kids' hands as they're putting them towards our mouths. I mean, it isn't isn't a non-human thing. It is a non-human thing to force us not to eat food that can deliver such incredible nutrition. And if done properly, also, you know, meet the other cultural and emotional expectations of, of eating. It's, it's worth it. You know what? Start with some cricket powder, start with some of these cricket balls and, um, and it's going to blow your mind. We, yeah. we started putting them on the shelves a month ago here and we can't make them fast enough. Yeah. I can't, oh, I can't wait to go and order a bunch of stuff. Plus, you know, uh, Sequoia and I are foodies. We love cooking. This is why we love watching everything you do online and how you're like all the amazing recipes. But now I'm going to go home tonight and be like, okay, we're going to expand our diet. I really am a big fan of diversity of foods. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like in order to feed your microbiome, you have to stop eating the same foods over and over and over again. And you just gave like three huge food categories of that will be a whole new experience to the gut bacteria in our guts. So I'm like, I can't wait. This is amazing. This is so, this was like as interesting as the first time I talked to you. So (laughs) I just, I love what you're up to. Uh, Let me finish on this thought. Um, One, how can people find you? We've, we've already talked a lot about that, but for my listeners, you know, what I think is so beautiful about the marriage of your information and my information is we truly are trying to get the human body back to a more foundational way it wants to be treated. Absolutely. So how do people find your, your resources? So there's the, our, our websites, we have two primary websites. One is eatlikeahuman.com. And that's sort of the, the, the Eastern Shore Food Lab side, the, the, the research and education piece. So all of our, uh, you know, there's information about the book, there's our blog, there's uh, the classes. We teach a lot of in-person and virtual classes as well. So all of that information can be found there. 
and uh, any upcoming research, those sorts of things, that's the home for it. And then the the food production side, the Modern Stone Age Kitchen is at modernstoneagekitchen.com and you can see all of that there. And on social media, same thing, you can find me at, at Dr. Bill Schindler, so Dr. Bill Schindler on Facebook and Instagram mostly. And then uh, Modern Stone Age Kitchen is where the, the other food pieces I are. I love it. And when I when we choose which one of those excursions we go on, um, with you, I'll announce it on my social media and, awesome. you know, like come join us. I'll be, a, I'll be a student in that experience, but I, I just think it's so neat and I can't wait to join you on that. So I would love really to have cool. you there. Really oh my cool. gosh. It'd be so much fun. So, okay. I'm going to finish up with this question. We, sure. you know, th- this is the third season of my podcast and this year we really wanted to focus on gratitude because there's so much of an opportunity in the world right now to be focused on what you're not grateful for. Hmm. But there are you could go to the other side of that coin and you could also look at a lot you can be grateful for. So, do you have a, gr- a gratitude practice that you do on a daily basis and what are some of the things that you're hmm. immensely grateful for right now? Well, I am immensely grateful and, and, and this, I mean, immediately as you're talking, I'm like, I know exactly what it is. My wife is the most amazing person on the planet. I mean, the I most amazing person on the planet. And I, I think not only has she made me a better person, but the kind of work that we're doing now is a direct result of her pulling me into reality. Like, if, mm-hmm. if, you know, if it was, if it was just me, I'd be living in a straw hut in the middle of the top of a mountain somewhere, you know, banging, <laughs> banging rocks and running around in a loincloth and I'd be perfectly happy, but it wouldn't be doing anybody any good. No, um, she is, you know, it's sort of that yin yang thing. You know, I'm, I'm, my head's buried in the past and her head is, 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 is up and looking around and saying, Hey, if this stuff is that important, what can we do to make it relevant okay. today? Um, so I'm immensely grateful for her. I'm immensely grateful for my family and my parents for never, I mean, I failed out of college and I dropped out of the same college and it took me 10 years to get my undergraduate, um, and my parents for never giving up on me. And then finally, you know, getting my PhD and things later, but, um, never giving up on me. I'm immensely grateful. And I have to say one more thing. Um, I have two corneal transplants. And they, I know, I know that one of, and I shouldn't know this, but I do know that one of my corneas is from a 13 year old boy who was in a Mm -hmm. traumatic accident. Um, And I don't know the situation in in the other, but I do know that in both cases, the families of the people that passed made the decision to donate their organs. And I literally am seeing the world through their eyes. And I am immensely grateful for that as well. Wow. 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 Well, I didn't think I could love you anymore, Bill. And you now have crawled, you and your family have crawled deeper into my heart. So uh, thank you for what you're doing. I, I just, I love people on a mission to help other people. And you, you just, exam- you, you're that, you're exactly that person, not just you, but your whole family. So, well, likewise. so appreciate thank you. you. And it's thank always you. a pleasure. Thank you for enlightening me. I will be sending you messages of my insect rest uh, attempts and we will, we will report back. So everybody go grab his book and go check him out online. And thank you, Bill. So grateful for you. Thank you. So great to see you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me in today's episode. I love bringing thoughtful discussions about all things health to you. If you enjoyed it, we'd love to know about it. So please leave us a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what your biggest takeaway is. 